killing of Breonna Taylor might have gone ignored, if not for her family's persistence. The New York Times has a documentary on the case, and I speak to the director, Yoruba Richin. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Yoruba Richin spent the summer directing the documentary The Killing of Breonna Taylor. It's part of the New York Times Presents series, available on FX and Hulu. The film explores how seeking justice can be shaped by who's telling the story. Breonna Taylor was a 26-year-old medical worker with no criminal record. She was killed in her home in Louisville on March 13th. We don't have video, like in other police shootings, so the first take on her story came from the police. Louisville police say three officers executed a search warrant at Taylor's apartment, an address police believed was used by a suspected drug dealer. Police were given a no-knock warrant to conduct a raid after midnight when Brianna was asleep. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, was with her and says they didn't understand who was breaking in. He had a licensed gun and fired one shot that injured a police officer. Three officers responded with a barrage of fire hitting Brianna with six bullets. Afterwards, her family felt they weren't getting clear answers from the police, so they hired an attorney to conduct an investigation that brought important details to light. We know from Officer Mattingly's own statement that it was a makeshift crew. That's a recipe for disaster, because you're about to beat down doors in quick, fast-paced decision-making process with folks that you've never done it with before. Yoruba's film helps us better understand Brianna's death, but also her life. We hear from those closest to her, including her cousins. I just loved who she was. She always had like a problem-solver attitude. It never mattered how big the problem was. She knew that she could solve it. And her friends. I went to school with her, even when she went to college. She'll come back home. And she'll come pick me up. I'll go spend the night with her on weekdays. And she'll be like, get up. You got to go to school. I got to take you to school. And she'll take me around to school. That's just who she was. And it's like, we don't have that no more. Brianna's case might have become another statistic. But her family's advocacy brought some consequences. In June, Louisville's Metro Council adopted Brianna's law, putting a ban on no-knock warrants. Last week, Louisville reached a settlement with Brianna's family for $12 million. But the terms don't require the city to admit any wrongdoing. The story continues to unfold. This week, one of the grand jury members who deliberated the case complained about how it was presented and called for public scrutiny. Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron has pledged to release the grand jury tapes. New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki collaborated with Yoruba on the film and continues to report. The killing of Breonna Taylor wasn't the only project Yoruba released in September. Her other new film is called The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. Yoruba looks back to February 1968, when Belafonte filled in for Johnny Carson as a guest host for one week. From New York, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. And now, Fabulous Harry Belafonte. Here he comes. dubbed that week the sit-in. He was blending politics with pop culture in a new way for late-night TV. 
His guests included Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy just months before they were assassinated. Belafonte also featured black entertainers such as Lena Horne, Aretha Franklin, and Nipsey Russell. The sit-in is now streaming on the new platform Peacock from NBC Universal. In our conversation, Yoruba talks about both of these new works. She grew up in New York and took a winding path into documentary. Her mother was a playwright, so Yoruba focused on theater for a long time and then considered law. Finally, she had a realization. I literally remember I said when I was in graduate school, I know how to write a paper, but I really want to try to affect people in telling this story. And it was just one of those aha moments uh, where I never, you know, I kind of never looked back. Earlier this year, Yoruba was finishing a project for PBS's American Masters series called How It Feels to Be Free, about six iconic black women entertainers, including Nina Simone and Pam Greer. But in early June, she got a call from the New York Times asking if she'd like to work on a film about Breonna Taylor. That's where our conversation begins. We were, you know, in the middle of, of shutdown on, on COVID, and uh, they called me. And immediately when they told me what it was about, I had no, you know, what they wanted to do the film about and would I be interested in directing it, I had no hesitation. I mean, I it was something... Um, that I knew that I had to do. I'd been watching the, the protests. I'd been obviously following it. Um, and again, seeing now, you know, now I've seen this, this uprising now a few cycles in my life at this point. Um, and this is an, a way that I knew I could, you know, be part of uh, trying to shine a light on this issue. Can you talk to me about what it was like uh, reaching out to... Brianna Taylor's uh, family and friends. Uh, you have a very powerful interview with her mother and with her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, and, and some of her other uh, friends uh, in the piece. And some of them have given other interviews. Can you explain you know, what that process is like, talking to people going through such a horrible time in their life? Yeah. Um, the process had already be begun with uh, Tamika with uh, um, Brianna's mother, uh, the producer had already started talking with the lawyer, uh, Lenita Baker, one of the one of the lawyers who was representing the family, and um, but you know we still hadn't secured participation as she was you know, dealing with a lot of stuff and figuring out what she was going to do and who she was going to talk to. Um, so when I came on, I began the process of talking with the lawyer, trying to get them to uh, want to tell their story with us, with, with me. Um, but pretty soon it became clear that I needed to go down there to meet them in person. And I did that and I met with them. And I think after I met with Tamika and Lenita um, is when we were able to, to set up the first interview. Um, and I think it was because, you know, I told them that we wanted to uh, tell the story of who Brianna was, uh, what she meant to her family, and try to find out what happened as much as we, we could. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that relationship, that, that's when our relationship began. And we, you know, I'd initially asked uh, if we, you know, if it was possible that we could interview Kenny. Um, and... You know, they were at first, it was kind of not looking like that was going to happen. But I think as we, um, you know, 
talk to more of the uh, friends and and family um, and the lawyers as well, uh, and that we were going to be telling a full story about who Brianna was, you know, that he and them uh, became willing to, to talk with us. Until this day, he hasn't done an interview with the other outlet. Um, we'll see if that's, that changes. But um, obviously, that was a very important interview. He's somebody who is traumatized, obviously. And it's hard for him to talk about, extremely hard. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, the friends, what, what the friends were uh, that we interviewed and her cousins, I think, were eager to talk to us, to tell us, to shine a light on who Brianna was and what she meant to them. And the thing that I really got from that, uh, from doing those interviews is, and I tried to portray this in the film, but the real sense of trauma that the community, her community and, uh, you know, felt and Louisville felt and feels. And, you know, I, 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 it's, it's not just the killing of this young woman. It's the killing of a sister, of a mentor, of a godmother, of some of a uh, you know fiance of you know the things that she meant to all these people. It's killing all of that. So that's how I think of it, and that's what um, I think people may not understand when we hear about these police killings. It's not just one person that's dead. It's all the hopes and dreams and meanings that this person had for their community. Um, this summer, there's been a lot of talk in the documentary community about how we engage with stories of trauma and uh, the kind of uh, care that a filmmaker owes to their subjects. Um, and I wonder, you know, what you experienced um, in uh, uh, from that standpoint in talking to these people who've gone through really deep trauma. Yeah, I think um, it's a layered thing because um, there's the trauma actually of, you know, what happened of, of losing this person. But there's also a, as I said, a community trauma um, that's uh, experienced by her community and by African-Americans, by us as a people. Um, and so that's another layer that adds to that trauma. So I think it's very important that it's, um, you know, as an interview, I think it was very important that I, as an African-American, understood that instinctually, understood what this kind of police and state violence uh, that we've seen over and over and over again, what it means to us. And it's a way that we, uh, it's a shared understanding that we have. And I think that comes through in terms of the questions that I'm asked, how I ask it, if this this is also an investigative piece. So there's some things that we're trying to find out, right? That, um, you know, that we need to ask uh, not only the police side, but from the family side that can be upsetting. For instance, you're trying to understand the details of what happened that night. So with Kenneth Walker, you want to understand what did the police say at the door? Uh, and you know, what was that sequence of events? Yeah, so actually with Kenneth, we could not ask about anything f uh, that night. That was the condition because it okay. he was still under, um, and I believe he's still, his charges were dismissed without prejudice, which means that they can be brought back at any time, or at least for a certain amount of time. So we couldn't ask anything particular to that night. But to your point, uh, we wanted to know what led up, what the what made the police go there that night. Like, what was the evidence that they had? And one is uh, 
what they say is evidence of a relationship that Brianna had with an ex-boyfriend, uh, Jamarcus Glover, who was a known drug dealer. Um, and so I wanted to ask, you know, the family and uh, friends what they knew about him, what they knew about that, that relationship. At that point, we actually did not know, uh, you know, know too much. Um, and uh, they, none of them wanted to talk about it. Um, and I think some of them did not know the extent, but all that to say is that I had to understand when I was as a, at, in asking them these questions and, and pushing, you know, and being, you know, a dogged, you know, director and, and reporter in this case, or journalist in this case, but when it crossed over the line to re-traumatization and when that it was clear that, um, you know, they didn't want to talk about it and that was that and let's move on. And so I think it's that, that's a, that was just a very specific, uh, issue and, but also a very big issue. I think that, that as a, you know, as a filmmaker, you have to be extremely conscious of that, uh, extremely aware of that. As an African-American, I also know that there's an attempt oftentimes to, uh, badmouth the victim and to paint the victim in some way. And so, being aware of that, you know, as I'm still trying to get the information that I'm trying to get. So it's a delicate dance, quite frankly. Another question of trauma arises in how you present the story. And th this film opens with uh, 911 calls of Kenneth Walker on the phone uh, after Breonna Taylor has been uh, killed. It's a um, very, um, very harsh conversation to uh, to listen to. Um, and I wonder how you thought about that, of, you know, uh, presenting this material. You want to, you want people to experience the, uh, the pain of the situation, I suppose, but uh, it, it's all, you know, there's, there's no shortage of experience of, uh, black pain this summer. Yeah. Um, these tapes, the audio, the 911 calls had already been reported had already been uh, released. So they were in the, you know, they were in the, in the ether, they, people had heard them. Um, so it's not like we were, we were releasing new information. Um, we also made sure that uh, Kenny knew that we were including those calls um, and that he had heard them. Uh, that was definitely part of our diligence. But in terms of the re-traumatization thing, cause they are very traumatizing to hear. Um, but I thought, and we as a production team and I as the director thought it was important to start with that, to understand, because you hear in Kenny's voice, uh, the fear, the, the a anguish, uh, that he was going through that, you know, during this and that it was worth it for us to understand what was going on because that had been a question all, all, all summer. What? the heck happened here, right? What, that's the question that everybody was asking. So we're trying to, you know, to tell that as best we can. And there's nothing more powerful than having the survivor, those calls, the survivor trying to get help for, for Brianna who was shot. Uh, so we're speaking a few days after uh, there was a verdict in this case, uh, and charges were not brought forth uh, on the officers for killing uh, Brianna Taylor. How did that verdict sit with you after you had 
uh, if you spend so much time investigating this case. Yeah, so let's uh, clarify. It's, it was the results of the investigation were released, right? That's what, and then the, whatever the, the three charges against Brent Hankinson is, as you said, no charges against anyone for her, for her murder, um, or even the charges that were that Brett Hankinson received were for reckless endangerment of the other apartments around her, not even for her own apartment. So um, we were expecting uh, that uh, charges against for murder were, were going to be tough for any of the officers because um, because uh, Kenneth, who thought Kenny thought you know he was bro- being broken into, and he sh- he fired a shot, and the police fired many 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 shots back. Um, so that was going to be tough. However, a couple of things were really upsetting to me and to um, a lot of my team. Um, so w- watching that interview with Daniel Cameron, he says that the police ID'd themselves because one witness said so. We interviewed at least 12 other witnesses, neighbors, who said that the police did not ID themse- themselves. So how, and actually, actually Rick Meany asked this in the press conference, how does one witness who says he did, they did identify ident- himself, you know, negate the 12 others who said he didn't, and Kenny, who said he didn't hear. He said he did not hear them ID, ID themselves. So something is wrong there, right? And that's the version, of course, that Cameron is presenting and then of course the fact that you know that no endangerment charges in Ferbriana's apartment i mean that we were expecting you know that as i said that it was gonna be hard to get charges against the officers but we did hear wanton endangerment was you know was more likely but we thought it'd be wanton endangerment for her own apartment so it was very hard to, it was very upsetting and it was hard to hear cameron uh, the the uh, AG because the way that he puts it is that this is the truth of the events and again the truth is never our truth the truth is never the truth of what Kenny experienced uh, the truth is never the truth of you know what Brianna experienced it's the truth that they put up and that they bring to the grand jury and because um, you know the grand jury I've been on a grand jury. Um, the grand jury, you, you indict everybody, you know, they, what, the, what do they say? The grand jury can indict in ham sandwich. That's like an old phrase for a reason. So that there's a problem with our system that allows this and the grand jury, um, you know, the grand jury should, you know, you should, it, it, this evidence should be given to the people, the jury to decide, not decide over whether, you know, there's an indictment or not. So there, it's a systemic problem. It was very hard to hear. It was very frustrating. And I understand the anger and anguish, you know, that the city, her family and the city of Louisville continues to have. You just identified, you know, one area where the police may have not followed proper procedure in, in identifying themselves. Um, it seems to me that there's a whole other infrastructure of problems that brought them to her doorstep in the first place. And the 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 whole policy of uh, of no knock um, uh, entries when protesters talk about this case there you know the, the focus is often on the police officers um, and uh, and convicting the police officers but I wonder if in some ways that uh, misses many other layers of uh, where attention needs to be brought to bear absolutely and it's it's 
the layers that you just said, the, 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 the multiple layers of this. So the, there's, you know, the sort of law, which makes it, uh, as written, makes it harder for the officers to be indicted. Right. Uh, but there's what brought them to her door that night that needs to be interrogated and no knock warrants, um, have been used increasingly used as a tool on the war on drugs. Remember this was all about drugs. This wasn't even about violent crimes and somebody killing somebody that they were trying to find. This is about drugs, right? So like, let's let that sink in. This woman lost her life over police officers looking for some drugs. And this has happened in many other cases. As we know, the war on drugs has targeted uh, the African-American community, particularly, not only, but particularly. And of course, um, no-knock warrants, which I did not know about until I started this uh, making this film. No-knock warrants have been used increasingly on the war on drugs. So it's the, it's the no-knock warrant that brings this intense militarization to uh, her door. You know, there were five warrants that night. The other four, you know, there had been, uh, you know, you can argue or police say there's been drug activity, fine. But there was nothing at Brianna's house. Why would they bring a no-knock warrant to a house which has no, uh, who's, who the, the inhabitant has no history of, no criminal history, no history of violence, no history of guns being at the house. You know, as one of, um, one of her friends said, you know, if they wanted to talk to Brianna, they should have just knocked on her door and she would have come into the police station. Like, why didn't they do that? So it's the, the fact of the no-knock warrants and the, the, the way the war on drugs has played out. And it's also the execution of the warrant as well. The killing of Brianna Taylor came out in the first week of September on FX and Hulu. That same week brought the release of Yoruba's other new film, The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. The film was inspired by a 2017 article in The Nation by Joan Walsh. Yoruba interviewed Belafonte, still eloquent in his 90s. He talks about his guests from 1968, including Bobby Kennedy. I think that there are, there are many areas in which we have problems in the United States. There is this great wealth that I talked about, and that there's yet this great poverty. There are speeches made about the fact that we're going to treat everybody equally, and yet we don't treat everybody equally. There's he came on and spoke to issues of race through the eyes of black children. That I was out in Watts, and I went by to see uh, some young men, who, and one of them was talking about the fact that he lived at home with his mother and nobody ever cleaned the garbage up. He said, they can draft me and send me off to uh, fight for this country at the age of 18, but they won't let me complain about my, the garbage outside my mother's house at 19. He spent How a good you? number of minutes talking about what he saw America's future to be. If we didn't perhaps tell untruths about ourselves, then I think that, uh, and, and faced up to reality, then I think our country would be much better off, and our people would have much more confidence in those of us who are public officials and in our government as a whole. I asked Yoruba what Harry Belafonte meant to her before she started this film. So I had always uh, known about Harry Belafonte, of course, but I, and he was, you know, a beautiful singer, actor, and activist. I knew he was very involved in the civil rights movement. But I did not know until I started this film the depth of his 
work as an entertainer and bringing the civil rights movement to the mainstream public and to uh, the, the world. And The Tonight Show was part of that. He was bringing the our, uh, Dr. King and uh, Robert Kennedy to one of the, you know, if not the most popular television show on at the time. And as we, as a commentator says in the film, we have to remember that TV was very segregated then. We forget how segregated it was. So Dr. King did not have many TV appearances, believe it or not. Um, that was such a fascinating detail in, uh, in that film to, re- to recognize. Exactly, that. exactly. So what Harry was doing was really subversive and revolutionary, um, even if kind of the people didn't know it at the time. Um, but yeah, so what Harry meant to me, you know, just grew so much more uh, and as I, as I made this film. So a lot of people in the film... Uh, describe how they never knew this week of television existed. Uh, they didn't, and these are people you're talking to who, who might've known it because their work as television critics or, um, you know, are otherwise very knowledgeable about the career of Harry Belafonte. Um, how did you come to know about this uh, week of, of him hosting the tonight show? Well, I came to know about it when the, uh, writer, Joan Walsh, who wrote the article about it, uh, uh, began to talk to me about about it and uh, about directing the film. So I hadn't known, known about it either. And I, you know, I laugh. I say I'm I'm always I, I I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about African American entertainment history. But this one I did not know about, and I immediately wanted to you know be a part of the project because I didn't know about it and because of its huge sort of significance in this way that had been lost. So one of the shattering facts that uh, you point out in the film is that of the week he hosted, I think only two nights still exist in recordings. So the practice at that time was to tape over recordings. So we have his recording of the night he hosted Martin Luther King Jr., but so many other uh, guests he had are, uh, are gone. I want to ask, when you're making a film about... Uh, that relies on archive. Uh, as a director, you're always kind of pivoting between the footage you can get, the footage you can afford. Um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of big musical acts like an Aretha Franklin. Um, and how did uh, those l- limits on what was available to you and what you could afford uh, shape your storytelling? <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing and smiling because. You know, and I'm no other directors out there who deal with the archive. It's it's obviously your archive is what makes the film, and it's what's the most expensive part of the film. So, you know, your producers and your lawyers and your uh, your your archivists are very key in helping you figure out what you're going to be able to use. But one thing I'll say is that. Um, you know, Shala Lynch says this, and she's absolutely right. Shala, the great filmmaker who's done a lot of archival films, that uh, these places like Getty and um, other archive houses are really holding our history hostage. Um, the 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 expense uh, of uh, using these the, this footage is so astronomical um, that most filmmakers don't have access to it if you don't have. Um, you know, resources behind that could help you get it. So it's a real problem. 
Um, we make these films regardless, but it's a real problem. And of course, we uh, are relying increasingly on fair use um, to help us with uh, you know, being able to to afford footage. Um, thank gosh for the internet. God, what did people do before the internet? Before you know, in making historical films. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge issue. And this is now. I'm now make currently making my third archival film. So I'm dealing with it again um, with a little, you know, a little more knowledge of how to go about it smartly. But it's, it's really a whole team that you need to be able to figure this stuff out and to be able to find the footage that you need to tell our story. And it is our history. Um, it's our history as Americans, you know, as a peop as people. Um, so much of our knowledge has been recorded and we want to tell these stories. And it's through this medium. But I do want to just say one other quick thing, because both Brianna, The Killing of Brianna Taylor and The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosted Tonight Show, you know, unbeknown, unplanned by me, were released within a week of each other. It was that was random. That was not by design. But it's also incredibly poignant for me because Harry, the things that Harry uh, and that we were dealing with in 1968, we're still still dealing with today. Uh, MLK, Dr. King talked about police brutality at the March on Washington. No one talks about that. No one plays that part of the speech. But that is police brutality and police and state violence has been a part of our history from the beginning. And it is obviously continued up until literally today. So it was very, um, you know, I think it's very significant that those these two films uh, were released within a week of, of each other and speak to each other. Now, of course, Harry, I worked on, you know, as I said, it wasn't by design, but, you know, here we are. thank Yoruba Richin for speaking with me. Her film, The Killing of Breonna Taylor, is part of the series The New York Times Presents, available on FX and Hulu. Her film, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, is on Peacock. See our show notes for links. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>